I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart.
his name is as ointment poured forth. Jesus, Jesus. His name is as Make me 
you know beyond all the songs the truly hungry heart. Mm -hmm. We know that um, everything is known by you. Mm -hmm. We just come and ask you to fill our cup and touch us by your spirit. Mm -hmm. Break us where you need to break us. Mm -hmm. Fill us, O oh Lord, that we might be filled with your life and faithful to thee. Mm -hmm. In every way we look to you tonight. We ask for a quickening anointing on our brother Lance as he comes and shares now a word make it live for all of us we come with expectant hearts uh, trusting in a faithful God we thank you Lord in Jesus name Amen, Amen. Samana and get together and I want to turn you to a very well known portion in the Roman, let Roman letter Paul's letter to the Romans <coughs> and chapter 12 from verse 1 Romans chapter 12 from verse 1 I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritually intelligent worship. And be not fashioned according to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace that was given me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but so to think as to think soberly according as God had dealt to each man a measure of faith. For even as we have many members in one body and all the members have not the same office, so we who are many are one body in Christ and severally members one of another. And having gifts differing according to the grace that was given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of our faith, or ministry, let us give ourselves to our ministry, or he that teacheth to his teaching, or he that exhorteth to his exhorting, he that giveth, let him do it with liberality, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. <clears throat> it's, um, I find it quite a difficult thing to talk um, about uh, Christian leadership, especially when we've had a number of these times, not only times that I have been involved in, but times that a brethren such as Stephen uh, Kong has been uh, responsible for. Because um, I, I imagine uh, that uh, there will not be a single thing that um, I will say in the times that are, I am responsible for, that you have not heard before. And this fills me with a very great fear. For the very fact that we have to say the same thing again and again 
is evidence of its importance. And yet at the same time, it is also, um, it can be a very great danger. We think that because we are acquainted with truth, that it is ours. And we fall into the trap which we find throughout Christendom of believing things that we never ever expect to become flesh and blood experience. Now I have absolutely no doubt at all in my mind that all our troubles stem from our leadership. <laughs> Leaders always like to talk about the flock. How apathetic the flock is. How indifferent the flock is. How impossible the flock is. How um, obstinate the flock is. Um, the lack of appetite in the flock. Uh, the lack of spiritual character in the flock. The lack of zeal and devotion in the flock. But I have never yet found any trouble with the flock. All the trouble is with the shepherds. The sheep find each other so naturally. I, I imagine that most of the sheep in Richmond who are born of God would find each other very, very easily if it wasn't for the shepherds. They love each other, it's a natural, spontaneous thing. They, 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 uh, they almost sense those who belong to the flock. And it is a natural, almost a natural gravitation to flow together. The problem is the leaders. I remember years ago a divine in Britain saying, never bother with your front row where the leaders are, all the troubles there. Speak over them to the flock, because that's where the real value is. <coughs> now the problem here this evening is that we're all leaders, or supposed to be, so we can't talk over anybody's head to anybody. The fact of the matter is, leadership <coughs> is strategic, it is vital. It is of the utmost significance as far as God is concerned. He will go to any lengths to produce real leadership once he has a willing candidate. And therefore I want to, in the times that I am responsible for, I want to underline three essential characteristics of leadership. I am conscious, as I've said, that we've myself mentioned some of these things many times before with those of you who are present, and others will have likewise mentioned <coughs> these things. And that's why I would like us to bow our heads in prayer for one moment and ask the Lord that he will um, really somehow uh, make the, the, our times together live to every one of us as if we'd never heard this before in our lives. Shall we ask the Holy Spirit? 
Oh, Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that we, we can turn to you in a matter like this. Lord, it's not that we want to somehow or other just hear things and not do them. Lord, we want really to receive an implanted word that will take root, grow up, and bear much fruit. And to this end, Lord, we ask that you will stand against anything that is just dull in our hearing this night. We take an anointing, that anointing which is ours for our hearing and for the speaking, that every part of our time together and right through these few days may be bought up by you, Lord, so that it is filled with eternal and real values. Lord, we cast ourselves afresh upon your mercy by faith, taking what is ours um, in, through your finished work. Uh, we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now if I was to uh, be asked what I thought was the most essential characteristic in leadership, I would, I think, unhesitatingly, unhesitatingly reply that I think it is this matter of being a living sacrifice. You cannot expect devotion in the flock if the leaders are not an example themselves of being a living sacrifice. Not a dead sacrifice, but a living sacrifice. It is so interesting to me that when the apostle comes in this tremendous letter, one of the most tremendous letters in the, in the whole uh, Bible, when he has surveyed the whole question of our salvation and of our life in Christ and of the church, he comes to this point. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God which is your spiritually intelligent worship. I think most of you know that uh, this word here, service, or in, I think in the old version, reasonable service, is in fact probably best rendered spiritually intelligent worship. It is not a matter of a once-only sudden dedication of your life in a moment of emotion. This is a cold-blooded decision on your part to lay down your life for the Lord and for his church and for the dying world around us. And it's as if the apostle draws together all the strands which he has so amazingly interpreted and defined for us in the previous 11 chapters with this cry from his heart, I therefore beseech you, brethren, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God which is your spiritually intelligent worship. God is not the least bit interested in a kind of sudden spurt of emotion where you suddenly say, I will be everything for you, Lord. I will go anywhere for you, Lord. Only within a week or two to find an exit, a fire escape from your dedication. 
It is interesting that the apostle goes on to talk about the body of the Lord Jesus. This whole passage is about service, about ministry. He says that uh, by the grace that was given to me, he says, I say to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. In other words, not have an exaggerated opinion of your function or of your status in the body of Christ or of your ministry, but uh, so to think as to think soberly. In other words, to be absolutely realistic. You ought to have a realistic evaluation of your place in the work of God and in the body of the Lord Jesus. He speaks of us being many members of one body in Christ. And he says that all these many gifts that we have, we must, every one of us, seek to function as we ought to function. But why do so few believers really function in the body of Christ? We all have this problem in the many companies, fellowships, assemblies that we represent here. Our problem is that there is a tiny nucleus that functions and a large amount of dead wood. And the dead wood, we're not, mean, we're not saying that critically. They're good sheep. But for some reason or another, they're timid or they're inhibited or they, they're not really functioning. Something's wrong. And the Apostle puts his finger upon this question of being a living sacrifice. As being the key to the functioning of the whole body. The functioning of leadership, which, which has as its calling the development of the ministries of the body. The bringing of the body to the place where it can build itself up in love. That is the whole point. It's not that we are to be here to, to sort of make the whole fellowship dependent upon us. But the whole aim of ministry, the whole aim of leadership, is to bring into being, as it were, a fellowship that can build itself up, that can function powerfully, effectively, realistically, spiritually. He puts his finger on it. It is not knowledge. It is not even training. You can go to a theological seminary and you can come out and you still won't have anything like this. You can have a knowledge of the Bible whereby you could expound passage after passage beautifully and soundly, but you won't necessarily produce this. You may have had uh, visions, but you will not necessarily produce this. You may have had revelations, but you won't necessarily produce this. It is not the amount of revelations or the amount of visions that you've had or the amount of mysteries that you are acquainted with, nor the amount of knowledge that you have, nor the amount of training that you have, not even the amount of zeal that you have. It is a question of whether you have finally, by the grace of God, fallen into the ground and died. 
a living sacrifice. There is about it, because we are so used to it, a kind of glamour. Oh, how wonderful to be a living sacrifice. There's nothing lovely about being a living sacrifice. It is a place of blood, a place of being cut up, a place of being burnt, a place of fire, and a place of smoke. I don't think there is anything very beautiful from one point of view about being a living sacrifice, but the results and the consequences of being a living sacrifice are wonderful in the extreme. For wherever people fall into the ground and die, our life is reproduced in others. You see, you can talk till you're blue in the face. You can, you can instruct people till you're blue in the face. You can have meeting after meeting. You can have marvelous Bible studies. But it doesn't make the church any more effective. You cannot reproduce the character that God has even got in you in another person by instructing them. What we often do is make awful imitations of ourselves. Now if there's got to be one of me, it's best for there to be only one of me. <laughs> It is a terrible thing when I try to instruct you and somehow other make you like me. So there are a whole lot of us all looking alike, acting alike, speaking alike, serving the Lord alike. It is exactly what God doesn't want. What God wants is reproduction. This is a different thing altogether. It's another principle. It is that somehow or other, God takes the spirit that is in me and the principles upon which I live and he transplants them into you so that they become yours in a totally original way and you develop in an original way. This is the problem in the church. It is not just that we need instruction. God only knows that we need instruction. It is not that we just need training. God knows that we need training. But the problem is to reproduce in others the kind of life and character that alone can satisfy God. You cannot produce a body. It has to be born. You can put together a machine and we only have to look at Christendom to see the number of machines that have not only been created in the past, but are in, in, in the sort of making today around us. Left to ourselves, this is what we all do. We can do no other. We have to produce systems because somehow or other it is the easiest thing for us to do is to put together a machine. But how do you put together a body? You can have all the perfect members of a body and you can stitch them all together. But still, it's a dead body. It will never function. It will never move. It will never think. It will never have the breath of life in it. Only by reproducing can that life that's in you grow in another. So that you are reproduced in a family. And that is what I believe is the true character of leadership. 
And here Paul puts his finger on the whole matter by saying the key to this body, which has many members yet is one body in Christ, functioning, everyone fulfilling his place and part, everyone contributing. The key to it is that there have been those who have presented their bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. They have seen it as their spiritually intelligent worship. This is not kindergarten. This is spiritually adult. This is for those who are on, in the process of growing up in the Lord, who begin to find out that things are not so glamorous as they thought when they first entered into the work of the Lord, when everyone wants to be a leader. It, it doesn't take very long for us to get into leadership to find that we're looking around for ways of getting out of it. The fact of the matter is that uh, the only way that God has ordained for the church to be born and the church to function is when you have men and women who can present their bodies a living sacrifice to God. Now in the Old Covenant, there was the sin offering and there was the trespass offering. These two offerings were wholly to do with the question of sin, knowingly and unknowingly committed. That whole matter was covered by those offerings. But there was another offering that was far more important to which the sin offering and the trespass offering led. And that was the burnt offering. And the burnt offering has something to do with service. As if God is saying, that is the only way that I can ever do anything, is when I have you as a living sacrifice. This is what the apostle is talking about. He's talking about a burnt offering, a whole burnt offering, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. Spiritually intelligent worship. My dear friends, we can never know what it is to, well, let me put it another way, we shall never be able to recognize the will of God as good, acceptable, and perfect unless we have a renewed mind. In other words, if we drop the facade, which is part and parcel of our fellowship, if we drop the facade and are totally honest with one another, which would be a dreadful shock and may not even be too good uh, um, um, to do, if we were totally honest with one another, I doubt whether anyone in this place would be able to say, I have discovered that the will of God is good, acceptable, and perfect. Most of us believe that the will of God is something to be endured with gritted teeth. <laughs> it is something we 
we can only face with Churchillian grit. <laughs> a kind of fixed chin and a set mouth and a steely cold eye. And we will do the will of God. <laughs> of course, we sing about the will of God being blessed and sweet and all the rest of it. But I mean, who really, when they get down to brass tacks, is ever going to say that the will of God, when we're in our heart, we're frightened to death of the will of God. Most of us believe that uh, the will of God is dreadful. We have to be dragged into doing it. But of course, we won't say that. I mean, we've got to be good Christians. And so we've all got to smile at one another. And then we've all got to say how good and perfect the will of God is. We can never, ever find the will of God good, acceptable, and perfect if we're fashioned according to this world. That is the problem. And after all, we have to face the simple little fact that our spontaneous attitude is as we've been fashioned according to this world. We were born this way. The very first thing we ever did when we were born was to sort of get. We, our one cry even before we could speak was give me. And from then on it's always been that we are naturally egocentric, self-centered creatures. The whole world revolves around us. And as we grow up, if you're a husband, your wife and family centre around you. The church centres around you. If you're a wife, your husband centres around you. And the children centre around you. It's a natural thing. It's all part of We're fashioned according to this world. And then we have the civil war of being born again. For when we're born again into our being comes an altogether different principle. The selfless principle. The God-centered principle. And suddenly we find in our, in our being, right within ourselves, in our hearts, in our minds, a civil war. We are fashioned according to the world. In other words, our spontaneous reactions are selfish and self-centered. And even if we are um, a sort of modest, we want desperately that everybody recognize it. <laughs> I mean, it is something that is natural to us. We are fashioned according to this world. And there is no way that you and I can find the will of God good, perfect, uh, acceptable and perfect, unless we have a renewed mind. Now, uh, we are as we think. Everyone is the product of their thought. It is a very interesting thing. Concepts govern behavior. In other words, your mind is a very important part of you. For as you think, so you are. 
That's the thing that determines in the end. You may believe in your heart a thousand things, but it's your mind that determines your behavior and conduct. The way you live. And there is no way that you and I are going to be delivered from that except by a new mind and a renewed mind. In other words, we have to have a new outlook, a new attitude, a new mind, a renewed mind all the time. And what I want to just say very simply is this, you will never have that renewed, that consistent renewal of your mind so that you can do the will of God and find it to be good, acceptable, and perfect, unless you are a living sacrifice. There is no way. For the principle of this world is I, first, second, and last. And a living sacrifice means that I have been crucified with Christ. It's another life and another mind. Now, my dear friends, what problems we have in Christian work today? Well, of course, they are not new. We've always had them. But um, uh, when we really look at Christian work, and especially Christian leadership, I have to tell you that um, I believe that Many of us have stolen And um, it's a, just another thing. God knows most of us get into this business of the work of God for wrong motives. If the Lord wasn't merciful, there wouldn't be any servants of the Lord. I don't know many who've got into this business out of absolutely pure motives. They've got into it because they have known themselves. They really want to serve the Lord. But mixed up with serving the Lord is all this feeling of becoming something, of becoming a power, of somehow or other being something. Dear friends, there's only one answer to this whole thing. It's a living sacrifice. There's no other way. Then I want to say something about the real empire builders. Now, when I say real empire builders, you see, these little men in little fellowships, they have not the ability to be real big empire builders, but they would like to be. But they haven't got the ability. But you know, sometimes I find amongst us there is this kind of very critical view. We look at certain... But now I wish I could mention names because uh, it would be probably quite helpful, but it would be quite wrong. But um, there are names of the household were names to all of us. And we look down our nose and say, oh, isn't it awful? <laughs> I, I don't find it over. I find it incredibly sad. Many of those men are real servants of God. They are born of God. They were saved by the grace of God. And they were called by God into his work. And let me tell you something else. In their beginnings, many of them were absolutely, seemingly pure. They really gave themselves without reservation to the work of God. 
to preaching uh, the word, to evangelizing or whatever. And then, because they never were ever aware of the motivating factors in their life, they weren't aware of some of these sort of uh, energies in them. They began to build up something. It all seemed to be God, you see. And they began to build great premises and then add more and more and more. And before they knew where they were, they had never, and they had to finance the empire. And then came the crunch, and then they had to peel and beg and beseech, give, give, give. Earlier this year I watched on television a man that I knew many years ago in Britain and I knew him to be a true servant of God. And I was so sad I could have wept as I saw this man on the television with haggard face. And we went all around and saw all the magnificent buildings on the campus and everything else. And from beginning to end everything began and ended with money. In Jewish things, we have a story uh, that originated uh, somewhere in Central Europe. And the most famous uh, um, uh, uh, story to do with it, which, from which most of us know uh, the uh, word, is in Prague. And it was an old rabbi who, uh, who, uh, who made a puppet. And he used to play with the puppet. And gradually the puppet grew and grew and grew till the puppet became a monster and took over the rabbi and took over everything to do with him. We call it in Jewish things the golem. You know, that's exactly what's happened in a lot of Christian work. It began as just a puppet without even realizing what were the motivating forces and energies behind it. And gradually it became a monster, till in the end we're no longer serving the Lord. The thing we have created has become our master. And, and we are almost carried along, we hardly know where, by the thing we have created. So. Dear friends, it's all in us, this kind of thing. There, there's no key to this except uh, uh, presenting our bodies a living sacrifice. And you will notice that the Apostle doesn't say, My dear brethren, I appeal to you to wait until suddenly one day something happens to you and you are blown along by a dynamic wind and power in the service of God. Now, I be believe in a baptism of the Spirit for service. I believe in a distinct experience of anointing for the service of God. And I believe in power, and I believe in that tremendous breeze of the Spirit of God, which alone can enable a man or a woman to do the will of God. But having said that, the apostle doesn't say, wait until somehow or other this great gale force hits you and pitch you along. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. You have to do something. 
it has to be a cold-blooded decision on your part. And you will notice he doesn't say, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by your knowledge of God, by the revelations of God, but by the mercies of God. In other words, there is not a person in this room who is not included in this. We can all, by the mercies of God, present our bodies a living sacrifice. That includes us all. It is a minimal thing. For there is not a person in the body of Christ, not a person in the kingdom of God, not a person in the family of God that is not there by the mercies of God. And by the mercies of God having been saved, and by the mercies of God having been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and by the mercies of God having been cared for by God, by those same mercies of God we can present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritually intelligent service. The Apostle, uh, the Lord Jesus, put it in another way, in words that you're, all of you know very well, in John, and chapter uh, 12, and verse uh, 24, and um, uh, 25. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a grain of wheat fall into the earth and die, it abideth by itself alone, but if it die, it beareth much fruit. He that loveth his life loseth it, and he that hateth it un uh, his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will the Father honor. That's a wonderful word, you know. Did you notice it? If any man serve, um, if any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. But the key is, verily, verily, I say unto you, except a grain of wheat fall into the earth and die, it abideth by itself alone. Now the word I want to underline is almost horrific. Listen. It abideth by itself alone. I wonder whether that could be written as an epitaph over much of our leadership. It abideth by itself alone. In other words, it has never reproduced another. The key is this, Jesus said it, if a grain of wheat fall into the earth and die, unless a grain of wheat fall into the earth and die, it abideth by itself alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Now perhaps you understand why I believe this matter of being a living sacrifice 
is perhaps the most essential characteristic of service. You can talk about knowledge, you can talk about visions, you can talk about power, you can talk about a thousand and one other things. But my dear friends, if a grain of wheat does not fall into the ground and die, it abides by itself alone. By itself alone. You can have all the experiences and you can have all the visions and all the understanding, but if you don't know what it is to die, you will remain exactly what you are and who you are. There will be no others. Now, if that got into your heart and into my heart, perhaps it would bring a new complexion in our attitude to service. Maybe we will begin to cut back on the worthless. Maybe we will begin to say, well now, Lord, help me. Who can fall into the ground and die? You know it's almost impossible, isn't it? I was saying to them down in Clearwater at uh, the, uh, the other uh, leadership time, I I've always been haunted by that marvellous hymn, O oh, love that wilt not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee, I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow might richer, fuller be. I got there, I've no problem with that, but it's the last verse that's always caught me. Oh, cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I got there, I dare not ask to fly from thee, I lay in dust, life's glory dead, and from the ground there blossoms red, life that shall endless be. It's that I lay in dust, life's glory dead. That's the thing I I find I cannot do of myself. I always found it an amazing thing that when Jesus came down into the waters of baptism to be baptized, John said that he saw heaven opened and heard the voice of the Father saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit came upon him in the form of a dove and abode upon him. Now, when I was first saved, I used to hear many explanations of this. And because I had never read the Bible, every time I read something like this, I was very interested. The Christians always seemed to be so used to it. That nobody ever asked why the Holy Spirit came like a dove, because they were all so used to the symbol of the Holy Spirit being fire or a dove. So nobody ever asked a question. But I thought it was the most incredible. Well, in fact, to be honest, I thought it was a bit stupid. I mean, um, um, wouldn't the Holy Spirit come upon him like a dove? <laughs> and I got the most incredible explanations. I was told the dove is gentle and pure. And I have no doubt, as the hymn says, that Jesus is gentle, meek, and mild. 
but he didn't seem to have that effect on him because he went out into the desert and had a colossal confrontation with Satan. Immediately. It was years before I understood why the Holy Spirit, when he came upon the Lord Jesus, for Jesus was born of the Spirit, but when he was 30 years of age, at the Levitical age, when you enter into actual service, heaven opened, the Holy Spirit came upon him in the form of a dove. It was years later I understood it. Why was Jesus baptized? I heard people say, so that you and I should be baptized. I thought, well, that's an extraordinary thing. Did he need to be baptized? No, 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 he didn't need to be baptized. Well, then why was he baptized? In order that you might know that you should be baptized. Well, that seemed to me, again, rather strange, I thought. Because Jesus had no sin to wash away, no sin to confess. Why did he have to go down into those murky, dirty waters of the River Jordan and be immersed in them? by John the Baptist. Quite rightly, John said, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. But Jesus said, suffer it, that all righteousness may be fulfilled. It was only years later I understood it. Those waters of Jordan represented Calvary three and a half years before he came to it. And it was as if heaven all stood back and God said to the angels, don't give him any help at all. Let him be absolutely alone in this. He, as a man, has to make a decision now as to whether he's going to, he's going to choose the way of the cross or reject it. The heavens didn't open when Jesus was on the bank. The heavens didn't open when Jesus was in the water. The heavens only opened when Jesus went down into the water as if he said, Father, I give myself to Calvary three and a half years before it. I'm there. I will die daily for three and a half years. And it was then that heaven opened and God said, My Son, in whom I am well pleased, as if he was saying, Like Father, like Son, this is my Son. He's like me. He's committed himself to the cross. And the Holy Spirit came down in the form of a dove. Why a dove? Because if you were a very wealthy Jew, you bought a bullock, a heifer. That was your sin offering. And if you were middle class, you bought a lamb or a ram. But if you belong to the vast working class of the land, so poor that they could hardly rub two pennies together, you bought two doves. And the moment John the Baptist saw the Holy Spirit coming down in the form of one of those doves, he got it. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who beareth away the sin of the world. John knew instantly that that sign of the dove was that Jesus was going to be a living sacrifice for the sin of the world. If the Lord Jesus 
needed the Holy Spirit in order to die daily. He who was without sin, perfect in every way, if he who was without sin needed the Holy Spirit to enable him to fall into the ground and die in order to die for him to die daily, to endure the gainsaying and contradiction of sinners, to put up with the deprivation of difficult circumstances and situations, to put up with the, the antagonism and wickedness of an evil ecclesiastical mafia. How much more do you and I need the Holy Spirit? Dear friends, do be careful of talking about the cross without the Holy Spirit. It is nonsense. When people talk about the cross, beginning first and last, it's the cross, it's the cross, it's the cross, it's the cross. What does it do? It produces an inhibited, intimidated, darkened, heavy people. Oh, they're so dark. All they can think about is how good it is to be afraid. You know, that's not what the Bible talks about. The Bible talks about going the way of the cross by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, you know, people say to me that we should love the way of the cross. I've never heard such nonsense in my life. Anyone who talks about loving the way of the cross has never walked the way of the cross. It's impossible to love the way of the cross. That's sentimental tripe. Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. It's the only way. It's for what is set before us that we go the way of the cross. To fall into the ground and die cannot be joy in itself. To be dismembered by other believers cannot be joy in itself. To become a doormat for everyone to trample over cannot be joy in itself. What kind of people are we? It's amazing to me the Gentile background Christians, their kind of morbidity and misery that they sort of feel is very much part of being a Christian. If you laugh too much, so-and-so needs to be delivered. <laughs> they forget the wonderful word, how it says, they the ransomed of the Lord shall return to Zion with singing and with laughter in their mouths. My dear friends, if you're going the way of the cross, you need to laugh. <laughs> I mean it. I mean it. If you know anything about the cross, you need to laugh. You'll never get through otherwise, I'll tell you that. From bitter experience. We need to be able to have the laughter of faith. That however terrible it is the way we're going, we're on the victory side, and this way is leading us to the throne. It is the only way. Well, now, I think our time really has gone uh, this evening. But I do hope you begin to see something. Why I call this an essential characteristic. This isn't just a, a kind of, well, it's, uh, it's necessary if you want to be reasonably effective in leadership. Um, this <clears throat> is an essential 
central, fundamental characteristic of leadership. You know, it's a tragedy when in the flock there are more people who are living sacrifices than in the leadership. How can we shepherd someone who is a, a, a better living sacrifice than myself? <laughs> I mean, I feel like sitting down and saying, Sheep, shepherd me. <laughs> oh, we are so stupid. As if the shepherd is anything in himself at all. None of us can be in this business but by the grace of God. And thank God he's doing something with us and if he hasn't got you now, he will. He'll get you in the end by hook or by crook. <laughs> Staff or by rod, he'll get you in the end. But the fact of the matter is that you and I need to face this simple little thing. You see, the Apostle puts it all in that marvelous letter which is all to do with service, the second Corinthian letter, and he puts it like this. We have the sentence of death within ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raiseth the dead, who hath delivered us and will deliver us. Now, I find this very interesting. I can't imagine it's a very nice thing to have the sentence of death. Do you? I mean, we don't normally throw a banquet because we've received a sentence of death. I mean, uh, it's normally a rather horrifying thing. One good thing about a sentence of death is you don't have to worry anymore about leaking pipes or leaking roofs or, or, or obstreperous children or difficult circumstances. All that's over. You've got a sentence of death within yourself. That's one good thing. But he explains it even more. He says in chapter 3 and uh, verse 5 and 6, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to account every, anything as from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. Ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. And then he says, chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, even as we obtain mercy, we faint not. Verse 5, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Verse 7, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the exceeding greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We are pressed on every side, 
yet not straightened, perplexed, yet not under despair, pursued, yet not forsaken, smitten down, yet not destroyed, always bearing about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be manifested in our body. For we who, are, who live are always delivered unto death, for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. It's a tragedy, these chapters, headings and verses sometimes. They break up our whole understanding of something. It's all about ministry. It's all about leadership. It's all about functioning as sons of God. And he says, listen, this is the secret. This is the secret. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the exceeding greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. Now listen to the catalogue. Pressed on every side, perplexed, pursued, smitten down. My dear friends, most of us, if we heard such a catalogue being given by some servant of the Lord, would say, you are a candidate for a deliverance minister. <laughs> you need deliverance, brother. We send, we send men like you to theological seminary and Bible school so that we may not be perplexed, let alone you. And here you are standing up there saying, pressed on every side, perplexed, pursued, pursued. <laughs> by demonic things. <laughs> smitten down. Oh, smitten down. When God wants you to stand up, what kind of servant of God are you? We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the exceeding greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We are pressed on every side, yet not limited. Think of that. Perplexed, yet not unto despair. Pursued, yet not forsaken. Smitten down, but not destroyed. Always, listen, always bearing about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life also of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal bodies. Not just in our spirits, in our mortal bodies. Always bearing about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life also of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal bodies. For we who live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. Someone says, well, what did, how, how, can, how can I? My dear friend, you present your body a living sacrifice. God will take care of everything else. You don't have to worry. I love the word always delivered. It doesn't say I deliver myself. I take the decision 
I give up all right to myself. I take up my cross. I will be. A, I present my body as a living sacrifice. God does the rest. Do you know who often does the delivering? Your brothers and sisters. They're always delivering us unto death. <laughs> For Jesus' sake. We get so angry with them. Sometimes the flock does it to leaders. There's the marvelous capacity of the flock for delivering servants of God unto death for Jesus' sake. And we get so angry. Oh, of course we've all, you know, it needs the Holy Spirit to remind us. But didn't you say that you wanted to take up your cross and follow the Lord Jesus? Yes, we say, of course. But not like this. <laughs> I mean, it's one thing for evil men to get at us. It's another thing for the saints to get at us. God only knows how he can reach you. Sometimes the only way he can get at some of us is through the saints. But you'll always be delivered. Sometimes it's circumstances. Sometimes it's situations. God arranges. He is a past master at it. But I don't know what it is about all of us. We've got this lovely idea that this dying is going to be such a lovely thing. Such a sort of sweet, spiritual kind of feeling. An ecstasy. It's not, my dear friends. The dying can be grim. But the answer of the apostle is very simple. So then, death worketh in us but life in you. That is spiritual adulthood. When we were babies, we wanted everything for ourselves. When we became children, we began discipline began. When we became adolescents, we went through the awkward stage. But when we reached adulthood, we had to learn to live for others. And so this question of service comes simply back to this little question of being a living sacrifice unto God. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritually intelligent worship. And be not fashioned according to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, you'll never be transformed unless something happens to your mind. And be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I dare to say that if every one of us were to become living sacrifices in this way, something would happen in a whole lot of fellowships and assemblies. Something that may never have happened before. What teaching couldn't do, what instruction couldn't do, what conferences couldn't do. 
what experiences couldn't do, you will discover has happened through being a living sacrifice unto God. May God help us. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, we've all heard this kind of message many times. In one way or another, different uh, lips, different tone, perhaps even different emphasis. But Lord, we've heard the truth again and again. Lord, we pray tonight, let your Holy Spirit get it into our hearts. Right into our hearts, Lord. May we really wake up to this issue. We begin to see, dear Lord, that there's no way through if service is going to be something for yourself, something through which you can come, something through which your will can be fulfilled, something by which you can work your works, something through which the gospel of the kingdom could be preached in every nation for a testimony, something through which the body of Christ may be built up the bride make herself ready for the coming of the bridegroom. Lord, only you can do this. Get it into our hearts, Lord. Not as a mental, a mentally or a understood truth, but as a living truth revealed by your Spirit. Lord, get it into our hearts in the way only you can do it to every one of us, Lord. And we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.